Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Please stand as we enter into worship together.
please take a moment to greet those around you and the students are dismissed at this time. Well, good morning. You can go ahead and find a seat, and uh, we are so glad you were here this morning. I just want to invite you to take a quick minute that uh, if you would like prayer, we are a church that loves praying for you, and we've got an incredible staff and a group of people that every week go through the cards and the uh, prayer requests that you all submit, and so we just want to continue to lift up any praises and uh, prayer requests. So inside your worship folder, if you open that up, there's a little tear-off section. looks just like this. Take a moment sometime during uh, us up here or during the service, fill that out, and then when the offering plates come by in just a moment, uh, go ahead and slip those in the service, and uh, we look forward to praying for you. Well, we're going to do something a little bit different for announcements, and this morning, I am really excited. We had a great time during the first hour. She did great, uh, but we want to introduce to you our new children's ministry director, Miss Connie. So yeah, give her a round of applause. Yeah, uh, we are in the process of just revitalizing and revamping our children's ministry program. I am really excited about what God is doing, and we've got a lot of stuff coming up and ahead of us that I know you're going to want to get your kids involved in, your friends' kids, your nieces, nephews, whoever you got. They're going to want to be a part of what God is going to do in our children's ministry program through this year. And this is the person that's going to steer that ship, and she's going to do great. So I just wanted to give Miss Connie just a chance to introduce herself to you, uh, tell you a little bit about her longevity here. She is very familiar with La Jolla Community Church and uh, a few other fun facts about her. But just tell us a little bit about you, your vision for the ministry, and uh, take it away. You did great last service, so I don't want to interrupt what you did. Okay. Hello. Um, I did want to start kind of at the very beginning, um, get comfy, uh, that I have always had a love for teaching Sunday school and teaching our children, mainly because when I was younger, my parents, so I had fabulous parents who showed their love for Jesus by taking action, and they were really involved in their church, and one of the many things they did was teach Sunday school. I can remember that. So when Bob and I had our first child, Kathleen, she was three. I started teaching Sunday school and kind of moved up a couple grades. And then our middle son, I went back down, started teaching a couple grades up again. And then our youngest, the same thing, went back to threes and moved back up with them. And then I just forgot to quit, and I just keep on <laughs> teaching. So um, here I am 25 years later still teaching and doing vacation Bible school. So with this church... Um, I started at the very beginning, and we would meet at a very fancy hotel. Some of you probably remember the little chocolate muffins. Kids love those. And Tammy Penner and I would um, gather all the kids, and we'd go to a conference room, and we'd teach there. And it was super fun. And then we got this uh, facility, and I worked under many fantastic leaders, and I've learned a lot with each one of them. Um, I main thing to say is I just love your kids. I just love them. And you parents out there, you give yourself a big old pat on the back because you have done a fantastic job. And every Sunday, uh, 
us, us kids, we open the Bible, we read a story that God has given us, and then we talk about their age, their grade, and what that story means to them right now, and how they can apply it right now, and go out there and show Jesus' love to others. And I'm just thrilled that I can come alongside and be a part with your families and with them as they become the perfect, unique person that God has intended for them. And I did want to add that uh, your kids are very smart. They ask great questions like, does God eat? <laughs> great question, huh? And uh, why did God make dinosaurs, even though we cannot play with them? <laughs> and this is one for both of you. Uh, where do the good people go, the good people that don't know about Jesus, where do they go when they die? <laughs> yeah. I'd like to answer that. Um, I answer it by this way. I say, ask your mother, because your mother will know. Uh, Connie, we are so delighted that you are accepting uh, this big responsibility. Uh, you've been prepared well. I love the idea that... Uh, your mom and dad were teaching Sunday school. Uh, Connie's dad was um, the head of Hewlett Packard. This, this road here, uh, Eastgate Mall, connected La Jolla uh, to Hewlett Packard. And, and to think a very busy person, that, he was, that was like one of the largest companies in San Diego, and he was the head of it. And so the idea that they would take time uh, to do that is impressive. You can see from her enthusiasm, she has everything she needs to do it. Um, she was a cheerleader at La Jolla High. She also has a black belt in karate, so don't yes. move, move slow when you're moving around her. No quick motions. <laughs> your children are extremely safe, too, which yeah, is Yeah, you're good. safe, very safe. Yes, I'm excited about that. But your heart for God and your heart for kids is such, a, such an incredible gift. And one of the things we want to do is, is, is we care for kids, we want to be caring for adults and parents so that parents can answer these hard questions. And we've learned that these questions aren't usually resolved and answered in one sentence or two. They open up conversations that go on for a long period of time. And we want to create lifelong conversations between parents and their kids uh, and, and uh, whole extended families. And we believe that if we uh, can do that, we will transform not only this congregation, uh, but we'll, we'll transform a whole community. Because who is initiating these kinds of conversations? You're not going to get it at school. You're not going to get it at sports. You're not certainly going to get it from the media. It happens at home. And so thank you for leading that effort. Uh, to equip families to not only know the Lord, but to grow uh, in their knowledge and love of Him and one another. So I want to pray for, for Connie. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've, you've motivated and prepared Connie, and now she answers this, this latest call uh, to take on this big responsibility. We know you've been preparing her thoroughly and equipping her through experience and study and deep reflection on, in your word and what it means to help kids be engaged in the whole learning process and to encourage parents along the way as well. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up from this congregation men and women who would uh, become Connie's uh, teammates uh, together to, to build uh, an irresistible environment for children and to uh, create uh, a momentum in our congregation that unites us as an intergenerational church. That, Lord, if we can get this right, we believe that we can bless everybody who comes in the doors of this place. So we pray that you give Connie everything she needs going forward uh, and encourage her every step of the way through your Holy Spirit and your people. And so we commit her to you in this high and holy calling and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You. I'm going to go ahead and invite Aaron to come up. He's going to lead us in our time of prayer for the people this morning.
morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a gracious Father, mighty, yet you save us with mercy. Almighty God, you are the creator of all, with hands that carve out beauty. You are author of life, yet you give us such freedom. Almighty God, you know each of us intimately. Your heart is full of love. You watch over us in our weakness and guide us daily. Lord of peace, we walk with you and seek your guidance as we learn to become more loving. Lord of peace, in your sanctuary, we're safe. Safe to let down our guard and dwell in your truth. Risen Lord, you come for the needy, the poor, the oppressed, the forsaken. Risen Lord, your life renews our hearts from within. Thank you that we carry your promise of forgiveness. Risen Lord, we ask for your spirit to work through us as we minister to the world and share your love with all. As we gather here in the harbor of your safety, we thank you for the fellowship and the family. We ask that you will strengthen us, restore us, and inspire us with your love. Almighty Lord, we thank you for being amongst us. We ask that you will speak through Pastor Steve today. Open our ears so that we may hear your voice. Open our minds so that we may receive your eternal wisdom. Open our spirits so that we may know your leading and guidance. And open our hearts so that we may receive your wonderful love. We ask all this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Aaron, thank you. Uh, I was saying at uh, the last service, as I was listening to Aaron pray, I was getting so emotional, and I realized it was not just the power of his prayer uh, and, and the deep theology and wisdom in that prayer. It was, I, I, was, I was transported to seven or eight years ago. I can't remember when. It was maybe seven or eight years ago where uh, in between services, uh, Elizabeth and Aaron came up to me, and, and they said, can we ask you a question? Uh, and I said, well, yeah, sure. And so he un unfurls this long list of, I mean, all these questions, and I can't possibly answer those questions in between services. But they identify themselves as, as parents of, of, of a preschool child. And you watch the kids now running around in, in middle school. Um, and it was so fun to say, yeah, well, of course, I'd love to answer some questions for you. And, uh, but I, I can't do it right now. And I saw Kara and Kepa Francisco, uh, and, and they're young kids. And I said, let me introduce you to them, um, because they're starting a group called a Rooted Group that makes, makes room for a dozen or so people to get together and spend eight weeks together exploring faith. And so they connected, and it was so beautiful then to ultimately hear your confession of faith in Christ and to baptize you and every one of your kids. And, and when they get to their eighth birthday, it's become a tradition in their family. They'll say, now, would you like a birthday party, or would you like to be baptized? And the children always say, well, we want to be baptized. Are you sure? And yes, and so it's been, you know, it's just been such a beautiful um, thing to see God work in your family. Uh, and really, this is what the church is all about. Uh, it's, it's simply um, opening ourselves to, to the Lord and, in, and making room for other people to be part of that conversation. And so that prayer today was a deep blessing, so thank you very much. Um, so it just shows you that you can even teach PhDs something, right? You know, you can, you're never too late to learn 
um, and ask the right questions. And so maybe you're sitting here today saying, well, yeah, I got some questions. We'd love to help you process those. Maybe you're saying, well, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty accomplished. I'm not sure if, if taking Christ seriously is a step backwards or a step forwards. And, and we, we can tell you assuredly, yes, it's a step forwards. Uh, it's, it's moving ahead and, and understanding what real, real, real knowledge is. And so we're asking the question, uh, apropos to this, uh, why does faith matter? We're, we're in a four-week series. Why does faith matter? And what are the elements that would, would guide us in understanding why faith matters? Uh, because faith in our culture right now is treated as incidental information, non-essential knowledge. Uh, and w rather, what we understand is it's, it's the most important knowledge we can have. Uh, because we are story-creating people. We create stories. Anything that happens to you, you come up with a story. And you might think, well, no, I don't do that. Well, yes, you do. Anytime you see something, you, you start to connect the dots and come up with a narrative of why this is happening or not happening. One of the things that everybody's stuck in traffic, and I hate to say this because it sounds cruel and, 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 and insensitive, but everybody in, in horrible traffic wants to see an accident. We want to get up and go, oh my gosh, no wonder there was this horrible traffic. All these cars and wrecks, and you go, there was no, Why? You know, we want stories that would answer our questions and make sense. How many of you have heard of Brene Brown? Uh, if you haven't, uh, I hope you do. Brene Brown uh, is a woman of deep faith. She's a professor at University of Houston. She has the most watched YouTube uh, uh, tech, uh, TED Talk of all time. Uh, she's written some great books, uh, all of them bestsellers. Her latest book is called Dare to Lead. She's not a business person, but she's written so many great things, uh, People in organizations said, would you write something? And um, she was asked to speak at a group of people for a big, big conference, and she was told that they were C-suite people. And she thought, she had no idea what a C-suite person was. And somebody explained they were a bunch of leaders. And as she walked out and saw these well-dressed people who looked like they were in command and control of all things, she said, this is, these are not my peeps. I talked to academics. And, and, and other people, and, and, and when she got done talking, she got this standing O. They said, this is exactly what we want to hear. The Navy, the Air Force, uh, I mean, all these incredible organizations are saying, we need what you're talking about. What is she talking about? The narratives that we come up with to make sense of our life. And uh, she tells a very funny story about her, her own research and how she stumbled onto this. Uh, and this whole issue of narratives and shame. Uh, and she was... Uh, She's, she's, like I said, she's been wildly successful at what she does. And so one year, uh, in February of, of this year, she said, okay, um, in September, I'm going to launch a new company. She already had one going. I'm going to launch a new company. I'm going to equip 1,500 people to take my stuff and, and, and train, be trainers of trainers. And uh, I'm going to do a book tour. And her husband and her team said that would be a very bad idea. And they said, look, you have no sense of time. There's no way you can do that between now and September. She goes, oh, no, I can do it. And she said, my secret information that I didn't share with them is that I was going to become a, a, a fully certified Pilates instructor in the meantime and run some marathons just so I'd have lots of energy. So she gets it to August, and, and a month from when this is all supposed to happen, she realizes it's just there's no way it can happen. Her dining room is stacked with information and stuff on the walls, and she's just having a meltdown of, how did I ever get into this situation? Just when she hears her husband come home. Uh, he's a pediatrician, and they have some kids, and he comes home, 
and she hears him opening the refrigerator, and it, it closes, and she hears him say, no damn lunch meat. She is incensed. How dare he say that? So she walks out. She says, hey, babe, what's with the comment about the lunch meat? He said, you okay? She goes, yes, I'm okay. You know, if you take that big old truck of yours and drive about a mile down the road to the HEB market and give them your credit card, they can give you some lunch meat. He goes, did you forget your credit card at the store again? She goes, no. She says, this is ruining my whole, my whole thing, you know. He, she said, no, no, but, but um, you know, uh, th- I know you're, you're angry because you came home and there's no dinner ready. And he said, Brene, what's 30 times 365? She says, oh, now you're math shaming me. He goes, no, no. She said, well, okay, Mr. Nodal, what is it? He said, I have no idea. But in the 30 years that we've been together, you've never made dinner. Because when I come home, we make dinner together. And he goes, and in the last five years, I've done all the shopping. And so I'm upset with myself that because I had a super long day and I was seeing patients, he's a pediatrician, I didn't have time for lunch, it's late today, I'm starving, I opened the refrigerator, I forgot to get ham, I wanted a ham fold over, and so I'm just frustrated. And now she's realizing, oh my gosh, she had this whole narrative in her head I'm such a failure. I'm a lousy wife. I'm a lousy mom. I can't even run my, my, my businesses. And now my husband's complaining about me. And she missed the point entirely, right? And so she, she dissolves into tears and he hugs her and he goes, hey, what can I do to help you? Uh, you're so deep, I, I, you know, underwater. Let me, let me help you get out of this. And so that got her uh, thinking about how these narratives work at home, in businesses, in life generally. We are narrative-creating people. Would you agree? Obviously, right? We, we just know this from our experience. And when you finally say to that person, you just know doesn't like you. And you say, I, I notice that you, you're, you're, you're so standoffish toward me, you avoid me, cause, and I, I'm assuming because obviously you don't like me. And, and only to find out that, no, you intimidate me. I just don't know if I'm good enough to be your friend. I mean, that kind of thing, right? Powerful. Uh, we create stories and narratives to explain life. Um, if you remember... Uh, uh, a man who was uh, our ambassador to the United Nations, he was a U.S. senator, his name was Patrick Daniel Moynihan. He was also a professional sociologist. He wrote some of the best stuff about how we help families in America. Uh, but he was super critical of his own party, the Democratic Party. He said, you guys have your head in the sand. He was also really critical of the Republican Party. You guys don't seem to think that these are important issues. And he ended up having one of the biggest impacts of, of, in my lifetime uh, in the U.S. government. Some transformational things he did. But one of the things he noticed in all of his interactions in Washington, D.C. and in the U.N. is that he said he ended up making this observation. Everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. Isn't that a powerful observation? Everyone is entitled to his or her own opinion, (laughs) but not to his own facts. What does it look like for us to engage the facts of life with a narrative that's rooted in truth? I, I love this uh, novel, uh, Don Quixote. It's the most translated novel of all time. Uh, it's written in Spanish by Miguel Cervantes in 1605. Powerful, powerful, powerful book. And it's, it's this picaresque novel, which means a guy who is kind of this fanciful character, Don Quixote, and he sees himself, he's crazy, and he sees himself as the last knight errant. 
a knight errant is a knight who travels around doing good things. And the, the Spanish Inquisition is behind him, and chivalry is long gone, but he wants to reinvoke it because the world is in such a mess. And he goes about doing all these great things. And along the way, he imagines there's this woman, he, he knows of her, but he doesn't even know her, Aldonza, who is, works at a barmaid. She's a woman of ill repute. She's not She's coarse and unrefined, and nothing is attractive about her. But in his mind, she is now Dulcinea, the most beautiful, virtuous woman of the era. And he sings her praises. Wherever he goes, he says, I just want to live to uphold the honor of Dulcinea. And so everything is about being honorable and, and uh, preserving uh, this image of this woman. So finally, I think it was Sancho Panza, his sidekick, who he pays to be a sidekick, but actually actually starts to love and respect Don Quixote because the world that he is imagining that does not exist is a world that everybody actually wants to live in. At some point, he points out that uh, Aldonza has all these deficits. There's nothing like what he's imagining or proclaiming. And so there's a long way around the barn saying this. Don Quixote, having heard this, says, facts are the enemy of truth. Facts are the enemy of truth. This is what every politician is sworn to say when they, they show up in Washington, D.C. From now on, uh, the first casualty and everything is the truth, right? Because the facts are so inconvenient. Um, facts are the enemy of truth. And of course, we would say no. Facts are the essential starting point for truth. There's no such thing as truth without facts. Why we want, we want a correspondence with reality. So that's why in this series we're asking the question, why does faith matter? And, in, and today particularly, we're asking the question, why is truth our essential narrative? Why is truth so important? And part of it is because we believe that facts matter, and how we interpret those facts is super important. Uh, there was a person um, here at the last service, uh, Oliver Jones, Bill Jones, was one of the founding uh, faculty at UCSD Medical School. And his genius was being able to teach generations of doctors how to diagnose patients. And, of course, the genius was simply paying attention to the people, really paying attention to what is the context of these symptoms. Facts make no sense without a context. And by, by being contextual, actually paying attention to the person, and it was like a Sherlock Holmes moment. He's, he's investigating these people, drawing them out in a very warm, caring conversation, and he would be able to then make a diagnosis that would actually move in the right direction. Facts always need a context. A man is walking down the street, He's, he walks into a bar, he walks up to the bartender, the bartender pulls out a gun, the man says, thank you, and he walks out of the bar. Facts. But there's no context, right? So you're saying, it's a nonsense story. What, what is that? Well, the man was walking down the street and had the hiccups, could not get rid of the hiccups. He said, oh, I need a drink of water. Oh, there's a bar. He walked into the bar to get a drink of water. He walked up to the bartender to request a glass of water. The bartender saw that he had the hiccups and needed a good scare, so he pulled out a gun and pointed it at him. The man was so shocked, he stopped the hiccups, and he said, thank you, and he walks out of the bar. Right? Facts require a context, and facts are the starting point of the truth. We are a truth-based faith. We talk endlessly, constantly, and appropriately about faith and grace. The faith that we talk about, the grace we talk about, the love that we talk about from God is all rooted in truth. If it was not rooted in truth, it would be imaginary, nonsensical, well-intended, perhaps even noble, but it would have been untrue. It would have been just a big opinion. 
We want our story to align with the facts of life. And in fact, we believe that the Bible is our foundational story for this. We, we, bli- we believe that, that the Bible is the meta story, and not a story as in once upon a time, long ago and far away. We don't believe it's a make-believe story. We believe it's the only true narrative to make every other narrative make sense. What do I mean by that? It's not the only book we read, but it's the essential book that we read. Going back to the analogy of, of Oliver Jones diagnosing people in a hospital. Can you imagine if a doctor said, uh, that child, we, we see there's some abnormalities in the sonogram, that child uh, does not deserve to live. This person is so old and they're taking up valuable resources, they do not deserve to live. And, and how could you question that? This isn't a medical authority. They're an expert on health and well-being. Except that the doctor next to them says, well, there's a, there's, there's a text that we need to consult. And this text is our foundational text. It tells us that life is precious because we're made in the image of God. So we, we protect the unborn and we protect those at the late stages of life. Do you see the power in that? This is the text that says, hey, great idea, but you can't fudge the data. This is the text that says, fantastic, but you can't kill a vast swath of people to achieve your aims. Adolf Hitler said, there's six million people getting in the way of my big idea for Germany. And proceeds to annihilate these people, right? A very efficient, in his mind, the final solution. Many, many people uh, who identified with the church stood by just going, what can we do? There were a few people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and said, you cannot do this. This is unacceptable. Because my foundational text says that this is idolatry, this is inhumanity, this is murder, this is wrong. Adolf Hitler hung Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But what pastors do we think about coming out of World War II from Germany? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He invoked this foundational text. So that's what we're talking about today. Are you with me? We believe truth is absolutely essential, and on a weekend like this, President's Day weekend, what's it all about? It's freedom. It's about freedom. Now, only two presidents made the cut. That's why we have this holiday. Um, Out of the 40-something presidents, it's just Lincoln and Washington that get the holiday. We give all the presidents credit for it. But one of the things that endear us to Washington and Lincoln was what? The way they told the truth. The way that they kept bringing the truth of Scripture forward into every decision they made and virtually every speech they gave. It was a profound integration of truth and faith. And for them, both of them, faith mattered. It mattered how they governed, how they led, how they lived. And so it should be uh, for us. And the Scriptures tell us that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And where there is freedom, you'll always find truth. Where there is tyranny, the first casualty is always truth. In tyranny, there's no room for truth. In the freedom that God alone can give us, there is, there is, there is always truth that's, just, that's at the heart of that freedom that the Spirit brings. The Spirit of God comes into our life and brings truth. He convicts us of sin. He shows us what we can be in Christ. He confirms our hunger for the living God. He leads us into understanding the Word of God. And so this Bible as our foundational story is how we answer the question, why does faith matter and why is truth our essential and central narrative? All right. Um, here are some facts that we see in Scripture that are the basis for this truth. Though created by God to enjoy freedom 
I meant to enjoy creation and care for it. God created us to enjoy creation and to, to be caretakers of it. We disobeyed him and we hid from him. We continue to disobey him and we continue to hide from him. This is one of the, 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 the great deficits of being a human being. We live in perpetual fear of being found out. One of the, one of the craziest things I've, I've come to understand experientially is having worked with, with men and women who are leaders at high levels for a very long time. Many, many people have that haunting sense that if, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't really believe that I have the authority and credibility that you give me. I'm kind of faking it in this role. Everybody who's ever walked into, uh, been elected to a high office, and, and I, I confirmed this with friends who've experienced this, and I always ask them, did you feel kind of like you're in eighth grade again, going, whoa, I'm getting away with something, I shouldn't really be here? But yeah, yes, I do. Uh, because we have the sense that we're, we're not really good enough, we don't have what it takes, we're hiding. We can't be honest about our sin. But God didn't give up on us or forsake us, he came to save us. And so that's why we see here in John chapter 1, John, one of Jesus' disciples, writing what we call a gospel, a description of Jesus' life and ministry. He says of Jesus, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. We're so used to hiding from God. We're so afraid to be discovered by God, we don't actually recognize him, and yet we continually yearn for him. He goes on to say, Jesus came to that which was his own. All things were created through him, the Bible tells us. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, who put their faith and trust in him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God takes us as spiritual orphans, wandering throughout the world saying, is there anybody to whom I belong? And he gives us the right to become ch children of God by faith, beloved sons and daughters, this is for people in all places, at all times, in all cultures. And so the truth is that we're loved by God in spite of our sin. He's not the God who says, if you do these things, I will love you. He's not the God who says, because you've done some things, I will love you. He's the God who says, in spite of the fact that you're hiding from me, you don't even recognize me, I love you. And I've come to give you life in all its fullness. And so wherein we exchange the truth about God for a lie, now in Christ we get to exchange that lie for the truth from God. You are the Lord. You are my Savior. You are who you say you are. You can do what you say you can do. This is a bombshell, don't you think? And we're going to see why it's a bombshell as we move through the morning. And so John says the Word, this ultimate embodied personal narrative of God, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So those two things are united in Christ, grace and truth. Uh, John goes on to say, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God with us, God in the flesh, God in person. But we notice that as we read the Bible, Old and New Testament, the entire thing, scriptural truth is not presented propositionally, a series of principles a series of ideas, a bunch of talking points, a bunch of things we're supposed to do. All those are embedded in it, certainly, but it's not presented that way. How is it presented? It's a personal and embodied love story. 
from start to finish, it's the story of God's engagement with real people, a real God engaging real people. And in the midst of that, as we, as we enter into that narrative, truth emerges. We start to see things. We start to make connections. So that's why sometimes uh, you'll hear me or other people preaching say, and therefore these three things. It's never presented as three things. Uh, 37 years ago on Valentine's Day, I didn't say to Janet, I'd like to present to you three things. It was one thing. Uh, will you marry me? It's part of a story, part of our personal narrative. And out of that, you know, there's all kinds of, somebody said, well, why did you want to marry her? I have a bunch of reasons. Um, if you said to Janet, why did you want to marry him? There'd be a very long pause. I have to think about that. That's a very good question. But you get the idea. It's all embedded in a story. So truth for us is not a series of propositions or arguments. It's a love story. And that's why we don't argue with people. We don't debate people. That's why Peter in his letter, uh, first Peter, or 2 Peter 3.15, I think it is, he says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you, but do this with gentleness and respect. You're not trying to win an argument. You're, you're inviting people into a conversation. And this narrative that we consider to be essentially true is this ongoing conversation that God invites us into. So the truth about you is that you're made in God's image to know Him and thrive in Him. And this truth resonates in you. Sometimes this truth convicts you. That's a fancy way of saying it makes you uncomfortable because you realize I am so far from it. Or I'm trying to rationalize something that I know is against God's purposes for me. Sometimes this truth isn't, isn't convicting you, it's comforting you. When all is said and done, as, as out of it as I feel right now, as embarrassed and ashamed of what I've done, I thank God that He loves me and accepts me nonetheless. He considers me his beloved son or daughter by faith, period. He's not pretending I don't have faults and problems, but he sees the essential you. It says, you, at the end of the day, I love you, and you can belong to me. And so his glory is his power expressed in his grace, and so even our sin can't obscure that larger truth. And so as, respond, as we respond to God's gift of grace, we're reestablished in righteous relationship with him. As we grow in his grace and truth, we flourish. And so John goes on in, later in his, in his account, we call it chapter 8. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus makes this a big uh, component of having a relationship with him. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. You're really learning how to live in the love and the grace and the truth that I'm bringing you. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Are you holding to his teaching, or are you hiding from his teaching? You might own a Bible. You might be even holding a Bible. But are you holding on to the content in that Bible? I find it to be such inconvenient truth, it's easier to put it to the side because I'm afraid if I read it, there'll be stuff I have to do that I don't want to do, things I might learn about me I don't want to learn. Do you relate to that at all? We hide by pridefully understating our need for truth. But once we start reading the Bible, that quickly dissipates because we realize, my gosh, you know, 
This is not about beating me up. This is not a long litany of all my failings. This is God constantly saying, here's how I made you to be. Here's how I'm redeeming you to be. Here's how we're going to get there. It's a love story from beginning to end, right? And all the way through. And so what we discover is that a disciple is simply one who learns from a mentor, a guide. And Jesus, as Savior and Lord of this world, is uniquely qualified to be our mentor and our guide. He, is, he has true authority and true credibility to lead us. What, what is authority and what is credibility, right? Authority, as you know, is a certain amount of power, earned or bequeathed, that allows you to, to initiate, to give input, to make decisions, uh, in the worst cases, to coerce people to do your will. But he has true authority. His resurrection from the dead <laughs> is his authority. His ascension into heaven is his authority. The fact that in the three years that he walked uh, the earth in his ministry, he lived to be around 33, but in three years of his intense, focused ministry, at the very end of that, under a trial, being accused of all kinds of things, uh, they could find no sin in him. There was no discontinuity between what he said and what he did. He has authority. He has power. But mostly, and more importantly for us, he has credibility. We can trust him. This is one of the most sad things when you see somebody in a place in a, power, a position of authority abuse their authority. Abuse under cover or color of authority. You know, the, the, the rogue cop who pulls over women and harasses and abuses them. The, 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 the creepy, conniving politician who's shaking people down for bribes, the despot who robs the treasury of the country they're supposed to be caretaking, right? Uh, we don't like abuses of authority, and so people lose our credibility. One of the things we do in celebrating Washington and Lincoln is what? We're recognizing, man, they use their authority in a way that is so credible. We want to keep them held up high as an example to every other president. Be like Washington. Be like Lincoln. They were not perfect, but they were awesome, awesome leaders especially in times of deep, deep uh, upsetting conflict and, and, and social dislocation. These were people who kept their eye on the truth uh, when it cost them plenty. And so Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not a boast. It's an invitation. It's not, it's not him being you know, boastful and bragging. It's him saying, this is for you. This is available to you. Come this way. And so we see that God restores the agency we lost in choosing that lie. You know, human agency is the big deal. Agency just is our capacity to make decisions, choices, and to participate fully in life. Uh, this is the neat thing about having a small kid at home. You get to give that kid agency. You get to recognize that kid's agency. You get to let them help make the bed or empty the dishwasher or do any number of things. And so the wise parent always makes sure that they're giving their kids agency. Why? Because that's how people develop. And God wants us to develop by making decisions based on truth. That's why he empowers and equips us to be his partners in his work in the world. That's why he can say at the end of his ministry, after the resurrection, before his ascension, Jesus gathers his disciples and says, go make disciples, teaching people to obey everything that I've taught you. Under my authority and my credibility, I'm giving you authority and, a cred and credibility, and I'll be with you always. You see the agency he's entrusted to us? That's why it's so important that we hold on to his teaching and not hide from it. 
that we appropriate the authority and credibility that is ours in Christ, not because we're so awesome, but because he is. That's why Connie's role is going to be so powerful and, and impactful. Her saying to every parent, I know you love your child, but you know you have a lot of agency, and I want to encourage you in applying that effectively. And together, let's help your children understand their agency and claim it and become the people you hope they can be. While they're with us, we get to encourage them until they launch, right? We're giving them the agency to make significant intellectual decisions, moral decisions, spiritual decisions, relational decisions. Powerful, powerful, powerful. And so he restores this to us, refutes the lie that we're complete in ourselves apart from God, and reinforces the truth that we're only complete when he's alive in us. So sometimes people mock Christians in, in America, and they say, oh yeah, you have a personal God. You're on private little personal God. We're saying, no, he is personal, but he's not private. Oh, no, Jesus is your personal Savior. That becomes kind of a trite mock of Christians in our culture. But what they're failing to understand is that it's personal because it's so transformational. God is going to love me in all my flawed array and transform me into his own image. This is the powerful beauty of why faith matters and why truth is an essential narrative in our faith. Therefore, he equips and empowers us to live authentically. We can stop denying, it's not me. We can stop projecting, it's them. We can stop blaming, it's not my fault, it's everybody else. And we can have God-given authority and credibility to serve others, to bless others as Jesus served and blesses us. Isn't that powerful? That's like an upside-down picture of power. Instead of me from the top down saying, I'm in charge and I control, it's me at the bottom saying, I'm going to support and lift up. It's you doing that. That is the most transformational, radical expression of power and authority one can imagine. My job is to lift you up, powerful, rather than to keep you down. The saddest thing, the necessary loss that every mom goes through is to say, yes, today's your first day of school, <laughs> you know. Or yes, you're going off to college, you know. It's like, oh, now who am I? But the wise parent says, thank goodness you're going to school. I get some time off. No, they say, you're going to learn some things. How wonderful. I'm so excited for you to learn and grow. How wonderful you're going to go off to college. How wonderful your, your first job. How wonderful you're engaging in, you know, in, in your own ministries. You're expressing your own faith. How wonderful you found somebody you want to spend your life with. How wonderful you're raising your own children. Adopted or naturally born or just those who, who God has brought into your life who aren't even your kids at all but you're investing in. You see the power of that? And so that's why he says, Paul, the apostle says to Timothy, his young protege, who's now a pastor in Ephesus when he writes this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, one prepared, one who submitted themselves to the, this, this discipleship process that's equipped you and informed you with the things that matter most. Present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. This is not saying, once you're an expert and you're perfect, come see me. It's saying, Lord, I present myself as a, as a person who wants to learn under you from my strengths, from my weaknesses, through my failures, through my successes. 
Uh, maybe the best way to picture this is, is imagine a friend, maybe you've been through this, but I've talked to so many people who've come through rehab. And they're sort of mortified because they went into rehab, usually under duress, against their own will, because they had enough DUIs or enough other pressures that legally required them to. Or their family said, we're done. Uh, Betty Ford is really full in January. Every rehab facility is. Why? Because finally the family said, this, is, this can't go on. And so it's mortifying, but the person is often in a fog. But through the process of rehab, for whatever addiction, they have all this awareness, and there's a lot of shame and grief. Oh, I can't believe I did that. And so when they, they come out, they might feel like, I have no authority or credibility. It's all over. I've been found out. I'm done. But really what they discover is that they're never more alive. And all of a sudden, they're not ashamed, and they learn how to handle correctly the word of truth. Why? Because they've now been freed up to tell the truth, to acknowledge the truth about themselves. So the parent who comes back out of rehab and says to the kid, hey, I'd like to talk to you about some things I did that I know hurt you and embarrassed you. I realize now that you, your friend saw me drunk. It was bad enough that you saw me drunk. Your friend saw me drunk. Or your friend saw me in a, in a, you know, in a rage. I want to ask your forgiveness. And do you think that child is going, I, I, you are a worm, I hate you, uh, you're despicable, I never want to see you again? That kid is moved deeply. And if they actually believe that this is effective, that the rehab is for real, they'll say, thank you. Yeah, it was really horrible, but wow. It's almost worth it to see you in this situation, a new you. That person has new credibility, new influence. Don't you think? That's why the power of the 12-step movement is so powerful. As I've talked to people over the years who have come through rehab, they're often the most free people on the planet. They're more confident because they don't have to hide anymore. They don't have to pretend anymore. They're more comfortable in their own skin. Why am I talking about this? Because this is truth in its most elemental form. The truth that turns you inside out and then puts you to get to back together again. This is what the gospel does. This is what he's talking about when he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. He's already accepted you. Now submit yourself to his tutelage, and he's going to equip you and prepare you to have a message that's not only helpful to you and your immediate family, but to everybody you encounter. You won't need to be ashamed anymore. You don't need to know everything anymore. When kids, uh, often parents will bring their kids to me and say, you know, can you answer this question? And there are these stumpers of questions. And often I have to say, I have no idea quite how to answer that question. Because you're seven. But let me give you some things to think about. And let's have this conversation when you're eight and when you're nine and when you're ten, right? I don't have to be ashamed that I don't know everything. Having a seminary degree means I don't know everything. You reading your Bible, you being in a life group, you going to retreats, you doing the things that help you work your way through community Bible study, whatever you do, doesn't make you an expert. It makes you a really informed learner. And the world is run by really, best run by really informed learners, people discovering, constantly saying, what else do I need to know? What else can I do to understand? And so Paul can go on to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I'm not ashamed. He's saying, I'm not embarrassed and I'm not humiliated by what God has done and by what God has said. Easier said than done. In our, and again, in our culture that mocks people, 
I can't tell you how many people I know and I've talked to who say, man, if I, if I came out about my faith, uh, it would end my career. Uh, I'd lose some friends. People would invite me to parties. And I know people who, who said that that did happen. But I know, but I would also ask them, well, was it worth it? And they'd say, yeah. A, a friend new in his faith, a guy that walked in here as an atheist a few years ago and finally came to know Christ, was baptized, and now he's sitting in front of the team he works with on one of the world's largest technology companies. He's in charge of it. And, and they've brought all the top leaders in these teams together from around the United States. And they say, look, we all know that everybody here is super accomplished and smart. Uh, what we'd like you to do is share one really important thing about you you'd like us to know. And this guy said, this is where I go down in flames. He just said, I know I have to tell them about what Jesus means to me. He'd been baptized like two weeks previously after spending about a year just processing, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? So when it came to him, he swallowed hard and he said, well, the most important thing I can tell you about me, I mean, I'm married, I have kids, I love them dearly. But the most important thing that's changed my life recently is that I am a baptized, believing follower of Jesus. And it was deadly silent. Until everybody started cheering and applauding. And I said, why do you think they cheered and applauded? And, and he said, I think just the sheer audacity of saying it kind of grabbed them, but then they saw what it meant to me. They could tell that it was really me being vulnerable to them. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. What's the downside to that? I'm not forcing it on you. I'm not pounding you with it. I'm just telling you there's a reason for the hope that I have. He goes on to say, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Righteousness is simply the God who rightly orders relationships. Uh, the, 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 the truth narrative that has fallen out of the whole civil rights movement, it was driven by people who believed in a righteous God, who wanted to righteously and rightly reorder relationships among people, Right? The legacy of Martin Luther King was one of a righteous God calling us to righteousness. It wasn't just a social movement. It was a righteousness movement with a social impact. It's like I mentioned about Bonhoeffer. What's the, what's the, uh, um, the Me Too movement about? It's about women demanding that people righteously and rightly order relationships. You can't use and abuse me. Now, the crazy thing is, you know, you see in these trials like with Harvey Weinstein, the, the people who were claiming that they were abused are now being embarrassed by their own sexual lives. Yeah, but you had a consensual relationship. And, and so they're picking them apart. But at the heart of it, it's still true. But I want a rightly ordered relationship. And whether or not that case, however that case turns out, a point's being made. We all yearn for rightly ordered relationships. If you've read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, in the first several chapters, he makes that so clear. You can be a complete atheist or agnostic, but you want a rightly ordered world. And so this is what Paul is saying. For in the gospel, this all comes together. The righteousness of God is revealed. How do we have access to it? By faith. And he's alluding here to Abram. He later became Abraham. Genesis 15, it says this. God speaks to Abraham in a dream. Do not be afraid, Abram. 
I am your shield, your very great reward. And then later uh, in that chapter, uh, Abram believed the Lord and, and, it, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. We have access to the righteousness of God by faith. That Lord, I trust and believe that you can help me rightly order my life around you. All for the better. It's ennobling, it's liberating, it's resilient, it's revolutionary, and it's contagious. So where does all this go? Why does faith matter? It matters for us. It matters for those we influence. Will, what will we show our children? Uh, will we show them the truth in word and deed, or will we obscure the tr truth from them? For those of us who confess Christ, how do we show our children? Because it really is show and tell. And, and I gave the rehab example. Even in our failures and how we talk about how we've learned to repent or to confess, that's powerful. That's a powerful message for our children. And if we don't do it, who will? If we want to bring the truth, we want to be the truth. So the psalmist says this. I'll wrap it up with this. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about His power and His mighty wonders. Because this narrative of truth that supports the question, why does faith matter, is about Him. It's about Him in us. And so he says, so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God. The story that God is writing in you, the true story that God is writing in you, will affect future generations or not. To the degree that we lean in and, and tell the story, the true narrative that we're experiencing, uh, it's going to impact and influence and inspire and inform the present generation and future generations. We want to raise up children and youth and adults in every age and stage who can tell that story. Not as brilliant orators or debaters, but as people with a reason for the hope that is within them. Not because it's wishful thinking with my imaginary friend, but because it's true that there's a God who loves me and is setting me free to receive his love and to give his love. In Christ, you have that authority. You have that credibility. So Lord Jesus, my prayer for me is that I would be able to lean into this through your Holy Spirit working in me your people encouraging me. I pray that each one of us can do likewise. That as your spirit moves in us and through us and, and, and in us individually, in us in marriages and friendships and in families and extended networks of relationships that somehow as we tell the truth about what we're learning and receiving from you and experiencing in you, it would be contagious. It would be irresistible. It would ignite conversations. It would transform the way people see themselves you, and everything else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward, and we're going to receive our offering now, but I also want to encourage you uh, that maybe there's something of yourself that you need to offer the Lord this morning. I mean, we heard from the Word of God uh, this morning beautifully, a wonderful message, and maybe there's something that just, instead of embracing it and holding on to it, there's this kind of distance, and there's this arm's length of, well, I know that if I embrace this, it's going to mean something for me, but as was shared so wonderfully this morning, whatever we receive from God, when we hand something to Him, and we embrace what He has for us, it's always better. It really is. And so during this song and during this time of offering, would you just truly give yourself 
to the Lord. So let me lead us in prayer one more time before we continue on in worship. Uh, Lord, we do just that. We come and we give an offering of our hearts, of our minds. Father, even this morning of our finances, giving to you, Father, what you have blessed us with. And Father, we thank you for the truth and the narrative of Scripture which speaks uh, such life and truth and reality of our life found in you and how that guides our story into the impact, into the life-changing transformation, not only of us, but of the impact that we can have on other people from your word, from your life. This morning, Father, I pray if there's anyone in here that just needs to lay something at your feet, that now would be the moment that they would do it truly taking hold of the scripture, of your teaching, that which gives life and breath and truth and purpose, and casting down that which has just been merely a distraction. So we give to you this morning what is rightly yours, the glory, the honor, and the praise, but most importantly, our lives and service, hands open, saying, God, use me how you would choose to use me. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
Uh, if we can pray for you about anything that concerns you, go right out around the corner to the uh, prayer garden. Uh, Mike Hedman and, and other people are out there to pray with you. Uh, this might feel awkward to you, the idea of going out and saying, pray for me. If somebody you don't know, it's not awkward. Just go out and either tell them what you want prayer for or just say, I don't, I, I just pray for me. It's powerful. It's a great gift. And so uh, if you're in a life group, you probably already do this. If you're on your own, certainly you do it. But man, this is a great thing if, if you're walking here with a big burden for you or for anybody else. But now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us everything we need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.